This is In Conversation from Network Reorient, in association with Reorient Journal and the Critical Muslim Studies Project. In the first episode of Season 6, Ismail Patel sits with Rob Fall Walker to discuss his new book, The Emergence of Extremism. Welcome to Network Reorient Podcast, a project of Critical Muslim Studies. On today's podcast, I have an individual who has taught in schools for over a decade and at present carrying out some research. Today, I want to discuss about his experiences and in particular, his new book, The Emergence of Extremism, Exposing the Violent Discourse and Language of Radicalization. The book has just been published in January 2022 by Bloomsbury. He is Dr. Rob Fort Walker. Welcome to the podcast, Robert. Um, thanks very much for having me. Nice to be here. Okay. Before we start discussing about your book, what I really am interested in is, is learning about your journey of how you came to write The Emergence of Extremism. Um, sure. So, uh, so I, yeah, I, I spent about 13 years teaching in schools in North and East London. And I suppose I was, I see myself as having been extremely fortunate because I grew up, I had quite a sort of provincial childhood. I grew up in the countryside on a farm and, um, you know, and, and anything but a diverse childhood. Um, so I was incredibly fortunate to find myself, I guess by chance, working in, in well, very um, diverse communities in North London. The first school I taught in, I think we had 60, 60 home languages spoken. Um, and then latterly, I, I taught in Tower Hamlets, which was actually not particularly multicultural um, because uh, everyone was, all, all the kids, all 99% of the kids were Bengali by descent. Um, but um, but was still, you know, from my perspective, it was very diverse. But the fortunate thing for me was to have spent so much time working amongst Muslims who I wouldn't have come into contact with. Um, and and I've always found that as a teacher, and I think a lot of teachers would would say this to you, that that you learn, and the great privilege of being a teacher is that you learn as much from your students as they learn from you. I think I'm probably probably more so. I think as a teacher, you probably learn more than your students learn from, learn from you. Um, and so it was a great great privilege to work work amongst these kids and with with these families. Um, and so it was all that made it all the more jarring, offensive troubling when the prevent strategy came into play so that was that's the british government's um the branch of the british government's counterterrorism strategy that focuses on the so-called so-called threat of extremism um and i i, I i'm putting up my fingers for sort of bunny ears for scare quotes around extremism because i think it's a it's a word that is um uh, that is, is unhelpful, is incredibly unhelpful. Yeah. It does, we, it we'll explore that in a minute, so just yeah. about your... But, your but, uh, but anyway, so I, I had these... Um, uh, found that I was then tasked as a teacher with um, adopting the prevent strategy, which essentially meant that if if a child was expressing their faith overtly, then they were to be perceived as a, um, as a potential terrorist threat, as a potential future terrorist, um, which I found absurd, offensive, racist, um, you know, add any number of words in after that. Um, and so I started speaking out against it. Um, and that's really sort of got, what got me to the, to the position I was, I, was, I was in. I sort of, I suppose, because I was speaking about prevent, out about prevent early on, I 
became I, I sort of managed I gained a certain level of expertise in in the um, in the strategy in understanding what was going on. Um, and there's just the sort of final two stages of that were I was invited onto a Tower Hamlets um, council local council scrutiny committee and to prevent. Um, and so that gave me initial insight into sort of how it was working at a local level um, or, or within local government. And also gave me an insight into how these kind of policies are forced through against the will of not just communities, but also against the will of elected officials. Was some, I saw some, some really sinister things going on with the way that Prevent was forced into, into Tower Hamlet schools. Um, and... And I suppose my next step was then I had an opportunity to sort of carry out some more, some, some actual research into this, which led me to, um, to UCL, where I spent a couple of years doing my PhD, which looks into, um, into, into how we got to this position where, um, ex- where you know, where the government have, have devised a, a, a counter-extremism strategy. Um, and so I then, then that, that was... That was I did my did my PhD, and the book is 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 I guess largely a is a product of that PhD, um, and then since then I've I've been working for the last few years. I was working at SOAS doing some doing some research, and then I've now recently moved back to UCL to carry out to, to carry on some of my some of my own um, linguistics research. Thank you. That, that's very very interesting. I mean, it's quite uh, fortunate that you know coming from a rural area into the sort of urban city and the fact that you have learned uh, I think that tells a lot because it's not necessary everybody takes that path it could be the reverse uh, for a lot of people or some people anyway I want to go back to this uh, I'm sure you went for a training program for prevent um, and you use the word sinister policies can you say elaborate a little bit on that Rob? yeah I, th- I think I mean they, it is I, I the idea that we should police extremist views is is incredibly sinister um it's it's particularly sinister let's let's take as the starting point is recognizing that we live in a democracy and in a democracy people should be able to air their views and it's by airing your views you know the the I mean, democracies have, have, have existed for, for thousands tens perhaps hundreds of thousands longer than this but the, the greeks you know who we sort of see as the founders of democracy in the in the, in the present era. Um, they invented democracy because it meant that people didn't have to fight. They didn't have to kill each other. Um, because if you if you have a democracy, people get to speak out, and by being heard, they then accept whatever the political outcome is after that. That's why you have elections. You have democratic debates. Um, you have parliaments, um, and even I would say you have schools as democratic institutions where. Children get to speak out. Parents get to be involved in the running of the school. Um, I mean, less so now with the academies program. But the idea is that this is this is these are communities involved in the running of 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 the state of the country. Um, so as soon as you start describing some people as extremists and say that they are beyond the pale, they are outside of of what is politically acceptable, you no longer have a democracy. Um, and I think that there is a, um, I mean, from from my personal experience, something that I I, I experienced going. This is going back a, a decade or so, um, was that there was a time when young Muslim men, young Muslim men that I had taught, 
would talk about going and traveling to Afghanistan to take part in some kind of violent conflict. Um, and it, in my, my position as a teacher, when I spoke to them about those things, um, which which happened on more than a handful of occasions, but not not it wasn't a regular occurrence. But when I spoke to those kids about those things, they would find out that I was opposed to the war on terror, that I didn't support the invasion of Afghanistan or the occupation of Afghanistan. And through that, they would then find that they, with my guidance as their teacher, that they could engage in democratic debate. They could write to their MPs about it. They could take part in protests um, and they could become democratic citizens. Um, so in those instances, in those those early days of my teaching, none of those kids, I mean, the reason I'm talking openly with you about it is because having had those conversations, none of those kids travels, none of them put themselves in, in risk because they learned that they could be democratic citizens. So they could eschew any kind of violent trajectory. Um, when Prevent came in, came in when teachers were then tasked with the responsibility of reporting those conversations to the police, ultimately, is what Prevent asks you to, or demands that you do, um, those conversations stopped. Suddenly, the, the, the conversations, you know, the, the, the more interesting conversations, and, I, and I, I can flip this the other way as well, talking about, you know, even... Um, white kids making racist proclamations. I'd rather they said that stuff in my classroom then we could thrash it out and come to a, a, a more harmonious community than, than then be silenced. And again, you know, Friend, Prevent has latterly, you know, been used to target the far right. And similarly, it's, it's similarly counterproductive when used against, against those kids. Um, and so I think there is a, we can draw a, a direct connection between, for example, um, the three girls that travelled from Bethnal Green Academy, um, most infamously Shamim Begum, um, which was the, the school next door to where I was teaching, um, they travelled after Prevent was in place. So I would argue very strongly that I suspect that those girls would not have travelled, would be less likely to travel if Prevent had not been in place, because it would be more likely that they would have had conversations about their intentions with adults um, if they if if prevent wasn't in place, but with prevent in place, they were left talking to them talking amongst themselves without being able to go to any confidants. Really, you know, I mean, we we now know that prevent has this effect, you know, within families and within social groupings, not just in schools. So that silencing of of those girls' political views. I would argue would would have been would have been a strong contributing factor to them ultimately travelling, and putting all their lives at risk and all the horrific things that we know have subsequently happened with them. Sure, you, I mean you cover very well in your book about the fact that the prevent strategy has silence seeking support, political opinion, and debate in in classrooms, um, and we can also argue that democracy at one stage allowed uh, British citizens to go and help others across the world in sort of conflict. So I'm mean, Spain is one very good example. Yes. Far beyond that, of course. And and that the fact that they've changed the law and democracy has restricted certain group of people helping other people in other parts of the world. That's another discussion for another day, I think. But I would like to go back to this uh, you go through a genealogy of radicalization, extremism as a word. And I think that's very interesting. I mean, as we know that concepts have consequences, I mean they're not uh, 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 benign, that they have an impact on how we think and how we perceive things. Uh, in, in your research, uh, in particularly with the word radicalization and extremism, how have you seen that shift? The, the, the concepts shift. Well, I think, that, I mean, it, it was, this was something, this is probably the thing that I found 
the most interesting that I found in my research because I think we sort of we all we all approach research with with a certain you know it, we'd be naive to say that we didn't approach research with certain preconceptions and expectations of what we're going to find but the thing for me that was totally unexpected um, was the way that extremism used to be used in the British Parliament um, and in fact actually you, you referred to the Spanish Civil War so at the time when um, British leftists, socialists, and communists were going out to fight in the Spanish Civil War. Would it, there were, um, and earlier than that, in fact, in fact, before the Second World War as well, there were um, in debates in Poland when the word extremism was used, it tended to be used by left-wing MPs. So we're talking about members of the Labour Party, or even at the time when there were communist MPs sitting in Parliament. And they would say to right-wing MPs, to conservative MPs, they would say to them, their warning across the across the chamber would be, you want to watch out about your enacting of that oppressive policy. Because if you bring in that oppressive policy, there'll be a rise in extremism and people will vote for us. So extremism, from a, a leftist perspective, go through the early part of the 20th century, meant meant people voting for the left and there's a there's a there's a what this shows is that the left were seeing themselves as in opposition and there's a there's a shift that happens well the, the, there's a there's a that's demonstrated in fact after in the 1950s after the welfare state has been formed so after britain has formed the nhs and arguably you know socialism is 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 delivering a better life for most people in britain there's a really interesting speech in Parliament where there's a, a, a member of Parliament says that uh, that he that we should be celebrating that's the Labour Party should be celebrating the loss of red patches on the map. So he's celebrating that after the welfare state has been delivered, after there's been a semblance of social justice delivered in the country, that Labour have lost seats. That's that's something that a Labour MP is celebrating because he sees himself as in opposition, you know, and being in effective opposition is what the Labour movement does. Um, and that that situation persists until, um, in fact, I mean, and this this was totally unexpected. I always feel like I need to need to give a give a warning here that this is not me massaging my data to, to, to demonstrate this. You can go and find it in the parliamentary record yourself. But the first usage of extremism in a different way is in 1983 in Tony Blair's maiden speech to Parliament, in which he refers to uh, to the extremists who are who are who are keeping out the extremists who are taking over the party. So he and as we all know, Tony Blair's version of Labour was a party that seeks to be in government and is prepared to carry out you know. As well, we can see it with Starmer as well, for following a path of, of Blairism, of they're prepared to uh, carry out certain levels of deceit um, to to be in power. They 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 sort of see themselves as sort of real politicians to who who seek to be in power, and that's what matters. Um, whereas traditionally, prior to prior to that, prior to Blair coming in, um, the Labour Party didn't aspire to be in power; they aspired to social justice. Um, and so that was a that was a big difference. So I think the if you then trace that back, so if you see how extremism as a word has come to totally um, occupy our political discourse now, um, that has 
not not only does it affect you know those people targeted predominantly Muslims, but it also totally um, unsettles our political the balance of politics in this country. What I refer to as parliamentary calculus. Um, that moderating factor that the Labour Party had of saying to the to the government, "Watch out, because your people will vote for us if you do that." There's a there's a, a balancing factor there. There's a, there's a there's a, a a way that oppressive policies are prevented. Um, whereas as soon as you've got once you've got two parties, the Labour Party and the Conservative Party, both pre- prepared to do whatever they will to get into power then there ultimately, ultimately are no longer any checks or balances or no checks on abuses of power. Um, so that, for me, is was the, was the story that I learned from doing my research that I didn't really expect. I expected I was going to be telling a story simply about, you know, this, this racist strategy that was, that was doing such harm to Muslim communities. I didn't expect to find out that this, this, there is a, you know, the, 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 the genesis of this word has done so much harm to the functioning of our political system in this country as a whole. Sure. So, Rob, obviously we have extremism as a political position uh, within the Labour Party or from Labour vis-à-vis Conservative Party at one stage. At what stage does it then become uh, a connotation with violence and is understood as violence? Because now, obviously, as soon as you would use the word extremism, uh, first, mm. it's violence, and maybe the next image that conjures up is a Muslim. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Well, well, so that's that's really the next the next stage in the genesis. So I, I took you up to to Tony Blair appearing, and he and he starts talking about extremism being a problem. And it's certainly not at that time. Does it? It doesn't have a violent connotation. It has a connotation of kind of radical leftists, not 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 violence. And 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 in fact, it's not it's not conceived as violence. Um, in when the first prevent strategy is written. So this is kind of 2004 under New Labour. And the first prevent strategy that's delivered by New Labour um, always precedes the word extremism with the word violent. So it, we're always talking about violent extremism. So that's what pre- prevent New Labour's prevent was targeting. It was targeting violent extremism. So that what that suggests is that extremism itself isn't inherently violent, because otherwise you wouldn't bother putting the word violent in front of extremism. Um, and but I think it's worth just dwelling on on New Labour's introduction of the prevent strategy, because in fact, the prevent strategy under New Labour is not discussed in Parliament at all. It's it's as as with many New Labour policies, it's slipped in under the radar um, as a well, just as as a as another yet another government strategy with no um, with no parliamentary oversight whatsoever. Um, but as as we all know, it was it was a kind of it was a national, fully functioning strategy under New Labour because pe- already people were um, were calling it out. There were many you know Muslim organisations that that are, are have been at the forefront of resisting prevent were calling it out even under New Labour. Um, but then the um, the prevent strategy gets um, it gets. Uh, aban- that, that prevent strategy gets abandoned but when the David Cameron's coalition government forms. And they they immediately publish a new prevent strategy. Um, and the new prevent strategy, which is the one that we still work with today, um, d- does not use the word violent anymore. It is a strategy to target extremism. 
and it doesn't put the word violence in front of extremism and throughout the strategy. There are a couple of appendices that do, but but the, the main part of the strategy is targeting extremism. Um, so what that then shows you, you then have to ask, well, why, why is a democratic government targeting extremism? And if you start sort of looking at, uh, I mean, you know, it's part of the counterterrorism strategy, it becomes evident that they are, that the only kind of justification for that is that extremism is now perceived as violent or as a precursor to violence. Um, and so that's that's where we 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 are now with the um with we're still with you know another 10 years later we've still got or more than more than 10 years later we've still got the the 2010 strategy which takes violence as as kind of self-evident to extremism which which is is kind of kind of is even more problematic than than before under new labor um because it it presents it pre- presents a a greater justification for the state silencing political opinions, um, it becomes sort of self-evident that that it needs to be silenced. And actually, it was that self-evidence that that really got me interested in doing this research. Because when I was on the um, Tower Hamlets Overview and Scrutiny Committee into Prevent, I found that there was a this strange thing happened. I was already very resistant to and critical of Prevent, but whenever anyone spoke about extremism or about radicalization, I had a sense that something had to be done. Um, and, and and it was this kind of common sense that I felt that something had to be done, um, even though I knew rationally that prevent counter-extremism strategies were a bad idea. Um, and that's really what my why I ended up carrying out the research. So I wanted to understand that. Why did I think that something had to be done? And I think it is with you you've just you know, started talking about the violent conversations. I think it is bad. I think the language has um interpolated us, so given us this this ideological idea, this commonsensical idea that extremism must be challenged. Um, rather than actually if we back off and just think about it for a moment, we realize that actually in a functioning democracy, we ought not to be challenging extremism. Certainly the state shouldn't have a have a have a role in doing that in presuming it's violent. Um, I think it's one one of the interesting things on that though is when we're talking about the state's role in um in countering extremism, which has become a, a massive preoccupation for countries around the world. One thing that's not that surprising is that these strategies, the counter-extremism strategies, have been were readily embraced, were most readily embraced after they appeared in in the UK and North America, were most readily embraced by by authoritarian regimes. Because prevent, if if we're talking about an authoritarian regime and not a democracy, then counter-extremism makes perfect sense. You have to have counter-extremism because you're you're shutting down dissent. Um, But we at least we still tell ourselves in the UK that we're a functioning democracy. Um, but I think the the, the existence of counter-extremism uh, initiatives indicate that our governments have uh, perceived themselves as something different to democratic government. Let me bring you back to something uh, that, that's raised uh a few questions in, in my head, really. Uh, one is, of course, the, the idea that extremism and radicalism equates to violence. And so how do we 
sort of assess an individual who first we think is radical and then we think that that person will become violent. I mean, that passage itself requires sort of some sort of explanation. But the second thing is, of course, uh, the idea of extremism itself now is nothing to do with um, violence, but it's more to do with challenging British values. Uh, yeah. And there's there's a change there as well. And, and the impact of that, how do you assess uh, the impact of those two, two factors on general British Muslims in general, in particular, rather, and generally for, for the whole prevent policy? Um, yeah, I mean, I, sp- I suppose the impact is, is it needs to be looked at more broadly. Just, you know, I think we, we live in a deeply racist and Islamophobic society. Um, I think Islamophobia has become the kind of the acceptable face of racism. And and counter extremism strategies prevent um, all fuel that. I think the I mean the, the the terrifying shift that's happened is is how I mean if you look at the um, the all party parliamentary group on on uh, Islamophobia now it's been taken over by people that work in by senior people that work in Prevent. So Prevent has kind of tried to rebrand itself as as challenging Islamophobia, which is just, which is complete nonsense, because it, it clearly is a, a significant contributory factor to Islamophobia. Um, but how, I mean, how do we challenge uh, that, you know, the, the the notion of extremism and, and the idea that the state feels they have to do that? I think there's a very interesting um, uh, little history here with um, Max Hill QC was very briefly the government's independent advisor on uh, uh, on counter extremism, uh, sorry, sorry, on terrorism, which is a it's a government appointed position where a, a senior lawyer is um, is given the task of having oversight of the government's terrorism legislation. It was introduced because you know since the government had been introducing kind of secret secret terrorism courts and and counter terrorism measures that that don't have traditional judicial oversight you, they bring in someone who's apparently independent and they they kind of keep an eye on how things are going um max hill was interesting max hill qc because he the, the previous people who'd been in that role had been in role for i think respectively 11 years and 6 years max hill was only in the role for 1 year before he was quickly moved on um and I think there are two reasons he was moved on. One was that he he spoke out very um, loudly about the fact that we don't need counterterrorism laws. We don't need any of these extraordinary laws because the criminal law is there to, to prevent these things. And if we use the criminal law, then the state has a lot more legitimacy than if you start trying to invent new laws and new strategies to... Um, to essentially, they, they're called pre-crime strategies, counter-extremism and, pre- and prevent. Um, but actually, as anyone who's looked into this knows, that they, all they do is they criminalise more people. They talk about going upstream, so before the crime has happened, um, which is incredibly dystopian. Um, there's no reason not just to apply the, the criminal law. Um, and... Uh, and, and I think that's that's kind of the in terms of challenging counter extremism. That is that has to be the position. There is there is absolutely no justification in having um, extra making extra laws to make it easier for the government to charge people. Um, and the other the other point you asked on about British values. I mean, I think just at the I think the starting point has to be that just how absurd it is 
to have British values. I mean, if 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 we are to attempt to define values, then they must be there must be a potential. The, the, the attempt must be on them being universal. Um, I mean, it, it, it's kind of mad to think that they would be anything other than universal. And I mean, much of what is written, you know, of the fun, of fundamental British values in the rent strategy are are simply universal values. Um, and other ones should should be up for debate. Um, so I, yeah, I think it's it's an extra. I mean, it's it's just a sort of an extraordinary construct to suggest that you support British values, and if not, you're an extremist. I mean, it's it's. Yeah, it's, it's also, yeah. There's, sorry, sorry to interrupt you there, bro. But I think there's also through prevent strategy and uh, the general approach by the government is to undermine what there was of a multicultural Britain yeah. uh, towards more assimilationist policies. Uh, and can, do you see any move towards demanding that those of ethnic minorities, and particularly Muslims, uh, to put pressure on them not to have their heritage expressed? Uh, in public arena, yes, yeah, no, I, absolutely, yes. I, I think I think that is a hundred percent the case. Um, I mean, I think I personally think that the the Trojan horse affair, you know, the Trojan horse hoax, where the the, the schools in um, you know Park Hill School and all the, the surrounding academies were accused of fomenting Islamic extremism. Again, I'm putting bunny ears up, heavy scare quotes there, um, but but was a an example of exactly that, and I think that was one of the, one of the other things that got me got me really concerned about all all of this was when um, when those schools were um, were failed their Ofsted inspections for for not um, and they were told they had to adopt prevent. If you look at the things that they were that they they were failed for, um, they were the same as the schools that I was teaching in in Tower Hamlets, where where we were. Trying to help the, trying to allow the schools to represent the cultural heritage of the kids that were attending those schools and of the families that were connected to those schools. So we had prayer rooms. We were sympathetic to kids who uh, who who needed who were who were struggling to fit Friday prayers around lunchtime and get to class on time. Um, we um, allowed. Um, uh, I mean, I think, well, that's I guess that's the main that's the main main one, and that was exactly what um, the schools in Birmingham were, cr were criticised for. We think we're doing we're allowing for things like that. Um, we're allowing for I mean, other things were having kind of uh, sort of Islam Islamic inspired um, assemblies, um, which in fact, just as a slight aside, is schools. Uh, this was the great conceit of Michael Gove that schools are, he said that schools were secular places. Schools in Britain are not secular places. Britain is a church state. The Queen is the head of the Church of England. And schools are meant to have an act of common worship. So they're, they're, in fact, it, it, the, start, the starting point within, within policy is that schools are meant to be religious. And in fact, many in practice are secular because the communities that they serve are largely secular. But for a school like like those ones in Birmingham or the school that I was teaching in Tower Hamlets, where ninety nine percent of the kids are Muslim, it's it's quite right and proper that those schools should represent the cultural her heritage and the religious heritage of those children. And I think the the thing that um, that that worried these kind of the kind of the nationalists and anti multiculturalists or the racists 
uh, who were who who ended who've ended up developing these kind of strategies um, from central government was that if you look at Birmingham, the 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 schools were not only representing the cultural cultural heritage of those kids, but the kids were also dramatically outperforming the predictions of the Department of Education in their academic results as well. So. If you consider that, I mean, from a sociological perspective, a lot of people will say that examinations and schools and classrooms are about forcing people to conform culturally, and the kind of the the exams you know go along with that. But but it's kind of forcing people to conform culturally as well. So what were the, what the schools in Birmingham were doing is that they weren't conforming culturally, but they were also doing very well in their exams. Now that, from a kind of sociological perspective, isn't meant to be happening. Um, and that was also what was happening in Tower Hamlets. We had incredibly academically successful schools where we were sending kids to Oxbridge, et cetera. Um, but also we had we were able to help the schools represent the kids' cultural heritage. And those that academic success was happening because of the cultural heritage being represented because it meant that the parents and the kids as well bought into what we were doing and they therefore supported the school. Um, why would you wouldn't support something that was opposed to you culturally um, necessarily? And and so so I think that the the the, the 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 heart of the kind of the the forcing of prevent through of the, certainly the current version of prevent that, that David Cameron's government produced is it is specifically against multiculturalism. I mean that's the it, that is exactly what it is to do. Um, and I think there there are at the far end of that argument, you get people like Michael Gove who've written horrific things about um, about Muslims' place in Britain with his his book Celsius Seven Seven, which is a, a an awful <laughs> awful um, nationalist racist screed. But what's interesting about Michael Gove is that. He represents the really the kind of the the far right of those ideas, which are very very closely aligned with the French idea of the state of of la cité and and having this this secular state where it is we are not a multiculturalist state we you know we we are not a multicultural society you keep your 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 religious and cultural heritage hidden away you keep it at home you don't bring it out you don't bring it to work you don't bring it to school. And I think that is very much the intention behind, um, you know, prevent, prevents and and the intention behind the government's general attitude towards Muslims. Okay, I see. I suppose what your study is showing is that uh, there is no conflict between cultural heritage and educational achievement, and maybe we could also extend that and say that uh, between multicultural uh, society, uh, there shouldn't be any conflict between that and national cohesion as well. I mean, just because we're multicultural doesn't mean we're cohesive nationally. Uh, no, and, and, and actually, and if you look at any of the, I mean, there, there was the, uh, what was that, the show called that Trevor Phillips did? Was it What Muslims Think? Yes, right. That awful, awful show that was on a couple of, well, it must have been on four or five years ago now. But if you look at that, if you look at the, um, which I did as soon as the show aired, I then went and found the, the the data sets from the surveys that they'd done. And they were totally misrepresented in the show. And <clears throat> I want to go back to an earlier point that we that we discussed briefly, which was about you mentioned about um 
how there, there has been a long tradition of British citizens going and taking part in, in foreign conflicts, for example, the, the Spanish Civil War. And um, that the law was changed um, to when, because there was a period, I suppose it was in, in the 90s, when there were some Muslims were going around talking about people going and, uh, you know, young Muslim men going, going out, traveling to Afghanistan. Um, and the law was changed to make that illegal. And it stopped. So <laughs> what that actually shows is that the Muslim population in Britain is incredibly law-abiding. Um, they, they, the law changed, and they changed, changed that those people changed their behaviour. Obviously, it wasn't all, all Muslims, but that, that those that community changed their behaviour. Whereas, but what and this is another reason I'm saying this it's another misrepresentation of the Muslim community is that what people actually do is they look back to the short period of time when there were people going around giving sermons encouraging young muslim men to travel to afghanistan and they say look look at the look at this this violent population that's not law abiding when actually what they were doing at the time was was within the law and the law changed and they then changed their behavior to, to remain within the law um, so again, it's this, this constant misrepresentation of to suggest that multiculturalism doesn't work, to suggest that a diverse society work doesn't work, when in fact it works perfectly well. And, and it's all, you know, I mean, the, the sort of the, the broader myths are things like when you see, you know, in the, in, in Fox, on Fox News and in the American press talk about no-go areas in, um, in British cities, um, which are, which is just just complete nonsense. It's just not. It's just as as anyone knows, anyone who lives in Tower Hamlets, anyone who lives in Birmingham knows, it's just not the case. Let me bring you back to to, to your book again because we're running out of time. Uh, I mean, and and uh, prevent in particular, we we had the government appoint Lord Carlyle to have an in, as an independent reviewer, and obviously he was uh, rejected. And thereafter, now we've got Shawcross. Uh, what do you see? the prevent strategy sort of fanning out i mean i know i know you don't have a golden globe <laughs> or a crystal yeah. ball rather with you but how do you think this is going to work out so i i it's very it's very i i just don't know I and mean, i really really don't know i think i think there are um well there are two, there are two two options i think the the one that seems to be to being being pushed at the moment is that there's going to be a greater an expansion of the prevent duty. Um, so that will be that, um, you know, you, you think, so at the moment, if you're, if you work in the NHS or you work in a school, you have, you have a duty to, 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 to adopt prevent. That's, it seems that that's going to be expanded more to other public places um, and specifically to places of worship. So I think there's going to be a, a, a quite extraordinary thing whereby mosques are going to be expected to adopt prevent um and and i think this is this is again a a there's an, again a, a great misrepresentation here that um the manchester bomber salman abadi was um the the didsbury mosque where he attended came under a huge amount of flack um uh, in in December, when during the the Manchester inquiry into the bombing that happened there, where the the the, the mosque was reported in the paper in all the papers in all the national papers about not doing enough to prevent this guy, when in fact it's on the record that they phoned the counter terrorism police five times to warn them about this guy, um, 
and they were it was only because and i mean i've i've discussed this with people that work in prevent it was or, or discussed it with people in the police but it was because they were swamped by thousands of false positive prevent referrals that they didn't get to that that genuine <coughs> that genuine referral um so so again this is based on on a myth that um that muslim communities aren't interested in counterterrorism. In fact, they they clearly are. Lots of, there, there are lots of instances of people having been reported um, where there is a genuine concern. Um, the trouble is that Prevent solicits these kind of false positives and, and swamps, you know, gives the police a database of thousands to look at. Whereas the the the, the Salman Abadi referral would have happened without Prevent anyway. Um, so I think there's that that possible expansion of Prevent into, into other areas of our lives. Um, including into our religious lives, um, and but I think there's um, it, it's worth just talking about this that, that we there seems to have been we see there seems to have been a recent discovery that the Henry Jackson Society, which is one of the kind of the, it's a think tank that's at the forefront of promoting Islamophobia in the UK. Um, the Henry Jackson Society appears to have been um, very closely working with the Prevent Review, with Shawcross Review. And Shawcross was, of course, previously director of the Henry Jackson Society. Um, so there is a close tie there. But if 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 the Henry Jackson Society was closely involved, which I think it is it, becoming progressively more clear that they have been involved in essentially running the review, um, then that gives it even less credibility than if even if 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 um if it even just from Shawcross, which it doesn't have any credibility with Shawcross being in place. Um the one thing I think this is less likely, but the one thing I have wondered for a while is whether because we've got the um there are so many other bits of legislation coming in, like the policing bill, um there's legislation around free speech, that there are all sorts of legislation that, you know, very, very oppressive legislation coming in from this government that will allow them to control us even more than perhaps even prevent is managing. So I do wonder sometimes, um, so they wonder if 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 it, it it could be that prevent would be scrapped. I, I just wonder if prevent would be scrapped. And I think it's important to just recognise that as a possibility because if prevent were scrapped, it wouldn't actually clear the decks for a, for a, for a more cohesive and a and a more free society because of the, the 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 horrific legislation that's coming in place, you know, to control speech and free speech in universities, etc., which essentially would do the job of prevent for it anyway. Um, and I think we need to be aware, very aware of that, because at the moment everyone's talking about Boris Johnson's drinks party. Which I think is is a classic is just another classic dead cat moment where they're bringing in more and more dictatorial legislation, um, and I think they're I think the Conservative Party are very happy to let that news story run for as long as it possibly can because by the day they're pushing through more oppressive legislation through Parliament. No, I think you raise a very very important point that uh, there's new laws are being introduced that might make prevent redundant, which are much mm. more oppressive. Uh, Rob, I haven't got much time. Uh, just like to know a few other things before I let you go. Uh, any new work you're doing uh, of interest that, that our listeners might might be wanting to get in touch with you or they should be looking towards? Uh, um, um, uh, 
not, I mean, not, not, not at the moment. I'm, I'm, I'm running a few courses at, at UCL, and uh, and I've got a um, uh, working on working on a on a on a couple of new bits of research. Um, but they're they're very very early stages. I'm I'm sort of interested in in how we've come how how love, in fact, has been corrupted by by market based economics. Um, mm-hmm. So that's something that I'm I'm sort of sort of interested in. But I'm at the early stages of that. But um, uh, no, I'm, I'm not. Um, I'm not. I'm not writing specifically about extremism, but it's sort of it's in in the same field. Um, trying to work out, uh, trying to think as well about. I think it's this is a difficult thing for all of us critics. Is how do we how do we be positive in our critique as well? How do we how do we paint something something more utopian, more utopian possibilities? Because I think we can get get tied up with being just negative. I think we need to try and find the positives in society as well. Yeah. Thank you very much, Rob, for your time and discussing your book, The Emergence of Extremism. It has been really a pleasure uh, and I hope our listeners enjoy your discussion. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. This is another episode of In Conversation, brought to you by Network Reorient, the podcast arm of Critical Muslim Studies. Thank you for tuning in. Have a listen to our other episodes and please leave a like and a rating. I can edit the beginning part, so it's much yeah. easier to edit the first bit once we start. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to Network Reorient. Uh, I have uh, a wonderful guest from all the way from America, Professor Hatim Bazian, who's the founder uh, of Association of Muslims of Palestine and also the founder for Students for Justice for Palestine. He's also a professor at Zaytuna College. Uh, professor Hatim, welcome to Network Reorient. Well, thank you for having me. Assalamu alaikum. It's a pleasure to be with you, Ismail. Uh, today, we want to discuss the issue of Palestine, which is very close to your heart, and you have been campaigning, working, and writing, and studying the issue. Uh, so, a lot of people will be thinking, you know, this has been going for decades. So, where are we at the moment, Professor Hatim? Uh, well, Palestine, we're close to over a uh, hundred years uh, plus uh, since the struggle of Palestine with the arrival of the British colonization post-World War I, the Balfour Declaration, and uh, the unfolding of the dispossession of the Palestinians. Uh, but be it as it may be, I am very optimistic uh, overall on where Palestine is heading as it relates to the larger picture uh, in terms of struggling for freedom, for dignity, for justice, uh, for ending settler colonialism in Palestine. And I say this for, um, a number of in, from a number of indications. Uh, if we just evaluate the past two years, uh, since Israel has unleashed its assault on Al-Aqsa Mosque, uh, 
the Ramadan 2021, um, April, May. And even this Ramadan, uh, this past Ramadan in 2022, what resulted from this is rather than uh, Palestinians losing hope and feeling the might of the Israeli uh, force and power, which is mighty and powerful, relatively speaking, is that the response of the Palestinians was in essence saying that we no longer have fear of this might machine. And this reminds me of Wretched of the Earth Phenom, when uh, the colonizer stands up and in essence saying to the colonizer that I am here and I'm no longer being afraid, coward, dominated, rather I am ready to challenge on both the psychological level, but more importantly on the applicable level, uh, the transformation that occurred is irreversible. And the second part of this statement is that in particular in the 1948 area, Palestine 1948 area, which for those who think about this is where the Nakba took place and the Palestinians, 750 to 780,000 were forcefully expelled, uh, some 531 villages demolished, and erased, eight urban centers completely erased, and Israel from 1948 to, I would say, the uh, Ramadan 2021, they have thought that they have managed to erase the specificity and the ability of the Palestinians of 48 to stand up as uh, Palestinians and as people that are rooted in their identity and in their land and their readiness uh, to challenge the Israeli machine. You raised two very important points here and I think a lot of people would agree with you on this that uh, the Palestinians seem to have uh, nearly lost the fear of the occupier, the colonizer and also there is an element, despite all the structures that have been created by the colonizers to differentiate the people of Gaza, West Bank and the 48, uh, they seem to have resisted that or it's coming to fall. But on the other hand, people who I might say that the violence that is being perpetrated against the Palestinians, it's going unchecked in the international arena. Uh, so much so that now we have even the Arab countries, uh, in particularly the Gulf states, who are not only uh, showing a blind eye to it, but almost uh, collaborating. Uh, so on the one side, we have the Palestinians, yes. But on the other side, we have the international, so-called international community uh, with power and access to in international instruments who are allowing Israel to do whatever it likes. And then does that, could, could that not spiral out of hand and lead to another yeah. strength of the Nakba that we had and the ethnic cleansing and the genocide? Yeah. Uh, again, I still, with all these factors uh, combined, I'm still uh, 
you know, guardly optimistic, but very sure. optimistic in this sense. Uh, the Palestinians have always faced the convergence of forces of the major powers. So it's very important to, to at least for anyone who's listening, the Palestinians have faced the imposition of Zionism on Palestine by the great powers. And even though that the leadership among the great powers shifted from Great Britain to the United States, we need to be very clear that all of the major powers were committed to Zionism as a project and continued to facilitate it by means of uh, political power, uh, protection on the international scene, military support, and partnership across the board. So I think in the ar arraignment of the international community, if anything, I would say maybe there is some level of shift or impact, but compared to where it is, that is not surprising to me. The second element to this, I remind people that the 1936 Palestinian rebellion was made, uh, was made to fail by the convergence of Arab collaboration at the time with the British to actually make it possible for the Palestinians to lose one of the most, uh, I would say, uh, courageous struggles at the time, facing the British machine as a superpower of its time and the Zionist irregular troops and armies. And the Arab allied themselves statewide at the state level with the British forces. So continuing to this present, the fact that Israel is leaning on the Arab states in the region, uh, opening through what's called the Abrahamic Accords, and uh, now they're talking about the Middle Eastern NATO, all this shows me that Israel is incapable of determining the outcome with the Palestinians on its own. And therefore, it's opting or at least trying to facilitate the engagement with the Arab world in order to try to limit the possibility and the impact of the Palestinian uh, mobilization, uh, continued resistance and perseverance under the most tremendous odds uh, that are arrayed against a struggle. Remind, Palestinians are not only facing Israel. They're facing Israel, supported by the United States, with the decisive support of the European Union, with the support of some of what we call Eastern European countries, Hungary, Poland, and others, with the support of the Arab states, with the Palestinian Authority that is actually imposed and is working with both the Israelis and also the Jordanians in order to limit the possibility of Palestinian resistance. With all of these odds arrayed against them, I think the Palestinians are still standing as the strongest component in the area of forces. Sure. So as this, uh, just looking from a, a, the big picture lens, I'm still saying that the Palestinians at the end of the day are determining the outcome of the struggle rather than being the object of the Zionist 
as well as their allies in determining the outcome. Let me just take you a little bit on the wider sphere there. Sure. Um, up until very recently, uh, the Arab states' uh, collaboration either be with uh, Britain at the time of the British Imperial as a superpower and America was done very harshly mm -hmm. behind the curtains. Behind them. They wouldn't declare it. We, where, there, where we knew records now indicate that, of course, there was that collaboration and there's enough evidence. But them coming now in the f forefront and doing it openly, uh, is that a sign of weakness or strength? And if it is a weakness or strength either way, what do you think the repercussions are going to be politically for those leaders in the region? Uh, I think this is... From one dimension, it could be seen as a strength of Israel that is, has been able to impose and normalize its presence as a regional hegemon. And it's been able to engage some of the Arab countries uh, in a normalization uh, pattern and also convincing them that the great threat to their security is Iran. And in the sense, it's sold if there's a selling to be made, that package that the Arab countries uh, that have normalized have adopted. But that also occurred as a result of the massive blow <clears throat> that has been directed at some of the key elements within the Arab body politic. And here, the destruction of Iraq should not be uh, uh, underestimated. The destruction of Syria even though that we oppose the Syrian's regime and what it has undertaken, but part of the dynamic of Syria is to actually completely weaken the society, where the result is almost 8 million refugees. The society is completely fragmented in such a way that next 30 years is not going to be able to reconstitute itself. The destruction of Libya, and here we're not talking about Libya in terms of Gaddafi as an individual, but Libya as a central society, Yemen, and then complete impoverishment of Egypt made it possible for the Gulf states to emerge as a critical mass of Arab politics, but without the critical mass of population nor strategic thinking. So in this sense, one can see this as an Israeli strength, but in essence, it's a mirage force and a mirage power that you could you could say it's propped up by financial means, returns from uh, the oil uh, resources, but nothing beyond that. It is hoped for that the reorientation, strategic reorientation of the Arab world toward Iran will make the Arab world forget about Palestine and weaken the Palestinians. And in this sense, this laughable, because the Palestinians, again, I think there was an image that I bought with an Palestinian elderly man sitting in the courtyard of the Al-Aqsa Mosque and drinking tea. And he had his foot up with his shoe pointing toward the Israeli soldier who was passing in there. In essence, saying that you could go to any part of the Arab world, you could go to any type of deal. We're here, we're not going anywhere. And our struggle is actually strengthened because Israel has no solution for the strategic boss it's created inside historical Palestine. The other dimension as that everything is out on public, I think we're living in a period where no secrets are left. Almost, 
you could say 99% of whatever is happening is already instantaneously transmitted. So the possibility of what you call uh, secret diplomacy that was the highlight of, let's say, during the uh, Israeli-Moroccan relations or Israeli-Jordanian relations or the bad deals or with various countries, that is a thing of the past. And in this sense, Arab elites who have also lost considerable legitimacy with their own population, uh, in essence, Israel is betting not on the wrong horse, it's not even a horse to begin with. It's basically an imported car constructed by someone else in the hope that this will actually prevent the Palestinians from gaining what is already clearly present and uh, almost obvious to everyone, that the Palestinians will gain freedom, that their freedom is within reach, and Israel has no solution to the problem that is there. You cannot, Israel cannot shoot itself out of it. Sure. And that's how I see the dynamics of being public in terms of the Arab world, because the critical sectors of Arab politics have been collapsed uh, over the past, let's say, uh, you know, 15, 15 years. But that's, again, it's a mirage. That's a very interesting analysis. And I just want you to expand on another dimension from there. Uh, you touched on the fact that, in a way, almost without using those words, that when there was a democratic representation in particularly, although there were a big uh, sort of big mass movement in Egypt and uh, Tunisia and, uh, and also Libya to a certain extent, when the people were to a certain extent allowed to express their political perception, not in a democratic sense of one person, one vote, uh, those regimes tried to at least have an ear to the public, whereas dismantling that structure now uh, and creating more rift with Yemen in particular, thinking of Yemen, uh, the Gulf states come, come into the fore uh, with their almost uh, monarchy approach to it without taking into account the public civil society. I wanted you to t consider two aspects. One is the civil society of the Arab region, uh, how they are reacting, in which direction that will take. Mm -hmm. uh, and then maybe we can build on that later on and think of the civil society, global civil society, and how that is also uh, rising up or not, in your view, uh, yeah. towards the cause of Palestine. Uh, I think that the fact that uh, political elites that is connected to the government are all singing the same normalization tune should not get us to think that the Arab uh, civil society, the Arab mass, and the Arab population have abandoned or have completely let go of Palestine. I think Palestine cause is stronger today in the Arab street precisely because of the failure of the Arab elite and Arab government in the process. Uh, one thing that I actually uh, often I watch while I'm no longer playing soccer, I still enjoy uh, being an ex-player to look at how soccer in Arab world, especially in the stadiums, the constant presence of the Palestinian flag is symbolic representation at the grassroots level of the affinity and the identification with Palestine and the Palestinians. We saw that during the um, what they call the Arab uh, Cup, uh, where the most uh, uh, 
at least most prominent presence of the flag with the Palestinian flag, the most cheering that occurred, occurred for the Palestinian team, uh, even in competitions that Palestine was not there, the Palestinian flag and the players of both teams on the ground were representing their affinity to that. This shows me that the process of normalization that is being undertaken with massive resources being spent on in the Arab world, which is predominantly a post-colonial structure, has not been successful in creating that uh, break where identification with Israel at the personal, communal, civil society level is taking place. Now, there is exception, again, in certain sectors, let's say maybe with the United Arab Emirates, but I also think that is a fictitious type of environment that is being constructed in order to give the impression that uh, the Arab world or that Israel has become a normal presence within the Arab region. So I'm very optimistic in this. Uh, the other part to this dynamic is that as the government have shifted to a closer relationship with Israel, Arab governments, that the struggle for Palestine is no longer contained in the ministries or the official arena of these Arab countries, but rather it moved out to the non-governmental sector, and people are more ingenious, creative, and have been able to express their... For example, I was completely taken back to see that there is an, a very active boycott movement that took place in Oman and in Bahrain as a result of the normalization that took place. It was, un, you know, it was unimaginable that this will actually be formulation. But as the government moved to sign on the Abraham Accord, that a very robust civil society emerged uh, that was always there. Again, uh, the, the Arab world, uh, you could say one of uh, aspect of their identity formation that gets to be renewed almost on an annual basis in Ramadan is this affinity and attachment to Palestine, to Jerusalem, to Al-Aqsa Mosque, that that civil society immediately under some duress expressed its relationship and its stand with the Palestinians. So as this, we see that this uh, public uh, embrace of Israel that is no longer under the table have resulted in likewise an above the table resistance that is emerging that is taking two shapes. One is actually think thinking and directing its attention to the governments that are there that have failed their policies and at the same time resulting in those relationship with uh, and stronger relationship and assertion with the Palestinians. Now, just to expand that uh, on the civil society movement uh, on the wider, especially European and American arena. Uh, I mean, as we know, historically, uh, especially in reference to South Africa, when the governments of Europe and America were supporting the apartheid system, it was the civil society that mm -hmm. acted. But I, I, I can't recall the instruments of powers in Europe and America trying to suppress the civil society against supporting South Africa as much as what appears to be happening now. Is that again a weakness or is there new tools do you think the civil society in Europe and America should adopt to try and overcome that and, and continue with their uh, efforts? Uh, I think in 
uh, in the United States in particular, uh, the, the anti-apartheid movement faced the repression of the state. Uh, remember the large number of arrests uh, that uh, we had as students who were organizing against South Africa apartheid, whether it's in Berkeley or San Francisco State. So, and even the U.S. government at the time during Reagan uh, put together a program called Reconstructive Engagement. Uh, and the South African government was engaged almost in an identical way that Israel is engaged today with trying to take delegations, inviting student leaders, politicians to come and see South Africa. They also tried to send South African blacks who were affiliated with uh, the apartheid regime, especially Chief Botelezi and some of his underlings. And I remember they bringing them to speaking tours all over. Uh, some of the corporate uh, interests were actually sending that they're actually hiring blacks in South Africa and therefore the boycott will hurt blacks. In, even Coca-Cola was one of the companies that began to shift its uh, headquarter from uh, at one point in one part of South Africa to a black uh, homeland to say that we are in a black homeland so don't boycott us. So the dynamics in terms of repression was the same. What is unique in this is that in the United States and possibly also in other parts of Europe is that you have a strong presence of a pro-Israel Zionist movement that in South Africa did not have that same population, meaning in here, whether it's the Board of Debris or some other parts that uh, advocate in a very strong way uh, to try to uh, pass legislation to criminalize the advocacy for Palestine. I do consider this as a strategic blunder on their part. And my reason is that uh, their attempt to silence advocacy have shifted the debate from a debate and a discussion about pro-Israel and pro-Palestinians to a fundamental issue about what is the nature of democracy, what is the nature of free speech, what is the nature of organizing, and so on. And I said almost uh, eight years or nine years ago, I don't remember, that this will actually bring more forces out to resist the imposition of silencing the debate. Because Israel lost the debate, because they no longer are able to argue settler colonialism, uh, they are no longer able to stand in front of any let alone, you know, we're not talking about the Congress and they cannot stand in any type of setting with a straight face to say that Israel represents a liberal democracy. Not only that, but every respectable human rights organization have already said is on the record with a substantial report that Israel is an apartheid state. We're talking about a Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, uh, Beth Salem, uh, the United Nations Human Rights Committee. So every reputable human rights organization has already put that apartheid tag on the state. Now, you could still lobby for Israel's supporters, a, a congressional leader or a, a parliamentary members, and you could actually put a law to say that boycotting Israel is illegal. But at the end of the day, that is not a sign of strength. That's a sign of weakness because you no longer are able to argue Israel on its own merits. And you end up trying to close. 
Now, does that impact at the short term? I would say yes, it impacts. But every legal challenge that we took to court, we have won. We have won challenges in Texas. We have won challenges in uh, state of Arizona, in uh, state of Maryland. And every uh, challenge is going to be uh, uh, at least mounted. And in the long run, it's a failed strategy because it's using stealth to actually close the debate and the possibility of challenging the argument, which is, is Israel an apartheid state? Is Israel a settler colonial state that is dispossessing the Palestinians? And in this sense, as people turn on the TV during this past uh, uh, May, April, May, and also the year before, that what is visually coming in front of their faces and in front of their eyes is a state that is only able to shoot and tear gas people who are peacefully praying. Not only Palestinians in Al-Aqsa Mosque, but also Palestinian Christians in Beit Lahem, Palestinian Christians in the Church of the Nativity, and the Church, the, uh, the church of the Supplica, Holy Supplica. They are seeing in their own eyes what is taking place, and Israel is actually trying to impose limitation on their ability to free think and act. And as such, it's a failed strategy. Let me on one aspect which is quite sensitive uh, and I think very little work has been done on this but it'd be very interesting to hear your view and that is regarding uh, the Israeli society itself you mentioned Beit Salem there mm -hmm. that is one of the Israeli organization most of the people there are Jewish uh, uh, I think uh, and they have classified Israel as an apartheid state how much should we concentrate in trying to uh, work with or at least educate and try and empower the Jewish Israeli Jewish society uh, community and, and Jews as well outside of Israel yeah. uh, to make them see uh, what Israel's doing and, and hopefully try and get them to uh, stimulate their humanitarian aspect and what would be better for the for the region and the people yeah. both Palestinians and Israelis maybe we could begin by looking outside to the United States first if we look at an age uh, spectrum, the older Jewish population is still committed to Zionism and committed to Israel. The younger generation uh, is decisively have shifted away from Zionism and shifted away from Israel as the main hub and the construct of their identity. And what we're seeing today is that uh, pro-Israel organization and also Israel operative in the United States are attempting to plug the dam within the Jewish community in the United States with first and first foremost trying to keep the segment of the young population uh, within the rank and file and support of Israel. And I say that this is also a losing battle for them because this young Jewish population that we are uh, seeing in the United States have come of age during the uh, Ferguson protest, uh, during the George Floyd protest, uh, during the Baltimore protest, and a high consciousness to the subaltern the high consciousness to the racialization and expressing solidarity with the Black Lives Matters as well as with the 
uh, increasing anti-Latino at the borders and anti-Asian uh, hate and so on. So they had to confront at a, both at a personal level and at organizational level. How can I be in anti-racist relative to Black Lives Matter, Latinos, so on, while continue to affirm a relationship of a state that actually practices ethnic cleansing and also expresses supremacy of one ethno-religious group over the other and witnessing the uh, uh, ethnic cleansing, uh, building settlements, and dispossession of the Palestinians. So I would say that we are seeing a massive shift in the younger Jewish population and in certain areas, a complete partnership with the Palestinians. For example, again, uh, AMP, American Muslims for Palestine, uh, our relationship with Jewish Voice for Peace. Uh, it's a very important uh, relationship. It's a relationship of partnership in various uh, arenas, partnership in advocacy, partnership in mobilization, and the Jew Jewish Voice for Peace it started not being anti-Zionist. It started as a on the liberal side, but have moved and now they have adopted an anti-Zionist platform. That's an important development uh, in the United States. Uh, I think you could say similar pattern. I don't have the quantification in the UK, but I think the younger population as a result of a number of elements, including I would say even going a little bit earlier to the anti-war effort, anti-Iraq war effort, and moving into the uh, anti-racism and so on, that resulted in a different consciousness configuration, and also that people have contacted each other in real struggle situation that is irreversible, but also brings uh, the challenge to Israel of how to maintain that uh, wall of uh, support for Israel at a time where it's no longer present. So I'm very optimistic. Now, when we go to inside Israel, that's where some of the major challenge. Uh, indication relative to Israel political uh, alignment, it, it actually shifted more and more to the right. Uh, increasingly, the Israeli society is more and more tending toward fascism, open fascism toward the Palestinians. Uh, and uh, the sector of what we call left or political left or progressive is a very small, thin layer. Uh, but that does not mean it's, that we should not engage it. We should be, and we are engaging some of uh, the political left inside uh, Israel that's anti-Zionist. And I think those increasing voices are going to emerge because the contradictions are there, racial contradictions are there, the differences, let's say, between Ashkenazi and Sephardic Jews, the discriminations toward the Yemeni and the uh, Ethiopian Jews, uh, and the various uh, alignment inside Israel society are only uh, at least points toward a possibility of a fissure that will take place uh, in this sense. Is it substantial? No, but it is, it is there, and we need to be accounting the level and the scope of it. Thank you for that. Just before I let you go, one more question. Uh, we have talked about sort of the Palestinian society itself and the difficulties this face vis-a-vis -vis, uh, internal and how they have uh, risen up and lost their fear and uh, the role of the neighboring Arab states. 
uh, and then extended it outwards and brought it to the Jewish-Israeli community itself, uh, including the external Jewish community. Uh, one of the things I would like to ask you is about Masjid al-Aqsa. Mm -hmm. uh, and I had a very strange conversation with Bishop Manuel of Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. He rang me once uh, very re about a year ago to say that, you know, whenever you talk about al-Aqsa, uh, consider it as a symbol of resistance for Palestinians and not necessarily just uh, as a symbol for Muslims. Using that, uh, his sort of take on it, how do you see the bringing together of the Palestinian society uh, itself, which is, uh, you know, we tend to forget that it's heterogeneous. We've got Christians, Muslims, mm -hmm. and all different types of people within the Palestinian society. How do we sort of try and mobilize that how are they mobilizing internally, do you think, themselves and externally, how we should be able to sort of promote that? I think Palestinian civil society, contrary to uh, maybe perceptions from outside, is rather unified. Uh, whether it's on even ideological differences, uh, is still at the struggle to gain freedom or unified, setting aside the Palestinian authority. Just said, but at the at the level of the civil society, they are uh, unified. Palestinian uh, Muslims, Palestinian Christians are unified. Uh, their uh, co-participation, both in defending Al-Aqsa Mosque and in defending the Church of the Holy Sepulchre or the uh, Church of the Nativity, and the expression that all these are important symbolic nods of resistance that represents Palestinian identity from all the way historically, all the way to the contemporary period. And what we need is to understand of how to uh, create solidarities, or not how to create the solidarities, how to project that solidarity on the ground and amplify it in our work transnationally. I think what we often fail to do, and again, myself might sometimes might be included, is that in our focus on the specificity, for example, in the mobilization, we tend not to look at the various ways that the Palestinians are connected in resisting the attempted fragmentation that Israel tries to impose on the Palestinians with some internal collaborators. The fact that the Palestinians have collaborators with Israel and Zionism should not be a surprise to us. It is part of the contradiction of colonization that you will always have collaborating class within a colonized society that will collaborate and act to pursue its own individualized narrow interests at the expense of the large struggle. How South Africa had it, Vietnam had it, Korea, and you name it. So we should not pre project that aspect of the weakness in Palestine and to think it is the national weakness across the board. Uh, and this is where Al-Aqsa Mosque plays an important role because of its uniqueness, because it's at, it's always been the hub of Palestinian identity, at least relative to the arrival of uh, Islam in uh, the region. And it is the hub where all national projects, as well as all of the uh, uh, crystallizations of modes of resistance, occurs in Al-Aqsa Mosque. And that also has a symbolic effect on transnationality. Uh, it, you know, it's not surprising that during Ramadan, you actually turn and watch and listen to the recitation of the Quran that is taking place. And usually, as, in addition to what is occurring, it's that people are 
making a linkage between what is occurring to the Palestinians, seeing in front of them the assault uh, on Al-Aqsa Mosque, and the Palestinians occurring at the most holiest period, or sacred period for the Palestinians, as well as Muslims across the world. And I think the relationship between the Christians and the Muslims in this sense is has been strengthened during this period rather than being weakened. Uh, and I think... Uh, if, if my uh, analysis or my reading of it, the Christian-Palestinian community has been far more assertive in defending Palestine with the Kairos Palestina's uh, platform that they put out or the document than I would say their counterpart Muslims, both whether it's internal or external. I think in this one has to, under, to give credit to Father Atiq in Palestine, Mitri Rahib and the others, because I think their work has been monumental and they have impacted the discourse among Western Christian churches as it relates to the Palestinian struggle. So when we, re when we see the Presbyterian Church of the United States passing uh, the resolution to declare Israel as an apartheid state by two-third majority, and just two years ago it failed. It actually failed to be on, 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 the, uh, on the floor and to see that it's actually passed, one has to credit our Palestinian Christian uh, organizers and activists uh, and their Kairos Palestina school, and also some of us that were working with some of the Christian uh, coalitions in that way. Uh, colonialism always wants to divide people that are under colonization. It divides them in, in terms of religious identity, divide them into sectarian identity, divide them into ethnic tribal identity, divide them into uh, various what you call poor, rich, and so on, and tries to instrumentalize these division in order to push forth this colonial project. Part of our resistance is to understand the long history and legacy of resistance and highlight those moments of resistance, moments of solidarity, moments of sacrifice, that have been articulated both Muslim, Jew, Muslim, Christian, as well as progressive uh, Jews and Palestinian Jews who stood in the face of colonization. In remembering the historical legacies of struggle of the past, we renew the capacity for future horizons for such moments. And I think those are, when, uh, when we see those moments, I think these are the way that we captivate. I add to it is that if People watch the, uh, the uh, outcome or the response to the assassination of our dear uh, sister Shireen Abu Aqleh, right? There was a, an idiotic debate that took place among certain segments of the Muslims, whether you could say Rahma on uh, Shireen. Setting that aside, Palestinians of all walks of life, Muslim, Christians, and otherwise, religious and otherwise, uh, affluent or poor, were all rallied and understood that Shireen is a symbol and a daughter of Palestine that was assassinated, and she was lifted out, prayed on by all Palestinians that carried her coffin, and those, some of those who carried her coffin were Muslim, just like those who carried her coffin were Christians, and you could see in the picture there were Christians and Muslims that were actually gathered around her uh, coffin trying to honor her. Those are moments where it transcends 
the capacities of limitation and the borders that are constructed by colonization. So in Shirin's Abu Aqli's assassination, we could see that manifested in front of our eyes. And the symbolic picture we saw were the attempt to drop her coffin uh, and the procession uh, to the ground, the Palestinians prevented it. And in that, it's a moment of resistance that if Fanon was alive, he would recognize that even though that Shirin Abu Akhli was dead in the coffin, Palestine was alive that lifted her up. So she might be in the grave, but Palestine is actually still alive and resisting no matter what power, tools, uh, machine guns that are arrayed. Uh, the symbol is far more powerful than the tool that is attempted to kill the symbol. Professor Hatim, I wish I had more time, uh, but we have to end it as time has come to <laughs> uh, cut our conversation sure. short. Uh, but what I would recommend to our listeners is please follow Professor Hatim Berzian's work, uh, either through his website or through social media. And there will be a lot to capture and learn as we the story unfalls. So, Professor Hatim, thank you very much. Jazakallah khan. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Wa alaikum assalam. Thank you, Ismail. Assalamu alaikum.